Hello and welcome to Mayo Clinic Talks, the opioid edition. I'm Tracy McCray and with me today is Dr. Casey Clements, an emergency physician and practice leader who works in the opioid stewardship program at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Today we're going to take a look into the opioid crisis from the emergency department perspective. Nice to meet you, Dr. Clements. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Because of the urgent nature of the emergency department, that's what you're there for, I would think that emergency physicians might have a different perspective on prescription painkillers and treating patients than a primary care physician might. Has the opioid epidemic changed how physicians evaluate and treat patients in the ED? Well, you know, all physicians, I think, actually want to help alleviate pain and suffering. It's one of the reasons that we go into medicine, and it's like part of the Hippocratic Oath. And so uh, I think that the difference that the emergency department has is that a ton of patients that we see actually have acute pain that requires treatment. However, we also have patients who um, are addicted to medications and may be acutely intoxicated or in withdrawal states. And we have patients who may be seeking prescriptions for uh, recreational use or even diversion purposes. And what I think is different about the emergency department than perhaps primary care or other settings is, is we will um, see all three of those situations in a single day. Mm. And so it makes it very difficult to uh, really assess for who needs prescription medications and who to trust mm -hmm. and who to um, uh, make sure that you're treating their pain adequately. I wouldn't have even thought of that. The only category I've ever been in is I am in such bad pain, I agreed to come to the emergency room or I had to come to the emergency room. Do the people who are trying to find a prescription because of an addiction, are they acting or do they pretend that they're in pain or how do they present? So that's a really difficult question to answer. I actually, uh, I, I tend to trust people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so when I say, are they acting or are they lying? I don't think so. I think that they are feeling pain. It's just that that pain may not be in the same category as an acute pain from an injury, for example. It may be more along the lines of they're feeling the physical effects of withdrawal or desire of those medications. And that's an entirely different kind of suffering. Sure. Yeah. What expectations are uh, placed on physicians or the prescriber in this case as it relates to pain control and to opioids specifically? This is a great question as well. I really think that we have um, both societal and personal um, uh, expectations that we set both on ourselves and our patients set on us that really play into the opioid crisis. Um, first of all, like I had said, Prescribers um, really want to alleviate suffering, and we want to do that as thoroughly and completely as possible. Um, as well, patients who come in, they want the strongest and most effective medications. And if you don't believe that, try to find uh, acetaminophen that's not extra strength. Mm -hmm. Because everything has to be the biggest, strongest, and most effective that there is. And if there's something stronger, we want it because we want that pain to be gone or to be alleviated to the highest degree. Yeah, why are you taking it if it's not going to get rid of it? Exactly. But I think that that expectation from a societal and patient perspective may actually not be reasonable. I think that we need to understand the indications and the reason that we're treating pain is to improve functional status and to make it tolerable. It's not to make it go away. And I think that's a completely different mindset than a lot of people have. But in general, we don't have any magic bullet apart from sort of numbing medications like lidocaine that's going to make pain go away. It's going to numb it or it's going to dull it. Are there specific situations or health conditions when a patient should not 
be prescribed an opioid? There's certainly the textbook answer that patients who are abusing illicit substances or have uh, abused opioids um, should not be prescribed further opioid medication. And that's really an absolute contraindication. But there's other relative contraindications as well. If someone is taking other medications that have drug-drug interactions with opioids, they should be avoided, and that includes um, sedating medications like benzodiazepines. The World Health Organization has a strong recommendation that, that this be avoided due to a significantly increased risk of accidental overdose and death if both of those types of medications are taken together. And there's other drug-drug uh, interactions with specific opioid medications that come into play. So for example, tramadol, which is usually thought to be a lower potency opioid, can have interactions uh, with psychiatric medications and cause significant and dangerous conditions. Um, and so those are also relative contraindications. In addition to that, there are medical diagnoses which probably are not best treated with opioid medications based on the expected duration of the pain, severity of the pain, or the mechanism by which that pain happens. So, you know, traditionally we may have given migraine headaches opioid medications. In general, that's not indicated because it's not mediated through the mu receptor pathway that opioids act on. Additionally, lots of chronic pain uh, syndromes such as fibromyalgia or a chronic um, idiopathic abdominal pain shouldn't generally be treated with opioids um, because the neurotransmitters that are involved in that pain are also not likely well treated by that opioid pathway. And opioids in that case, as they've been taken maybe even longer term, can be taken for the euphoriant effect more than any pain control effect. I would think that um, if you're going to see your physician and you've got an office visit scheduled, um, time is not as much of the essence as it is in the ED. So if you have the patient's record, then you, then you know the different, all the different drugs that you just mentioned. But if someone shows up in the emergency room at 1 o'clock in the morning, you're re rely if you don't have their records, you're relying on them to tell you what medications they are taking and they might not be the best reporter of that information <laughs> based on they're in a lot of pain or it's one o'clock in the morning or I can't remember anything right now because I'm sitting in an emergency room. I mean, how do you, uh, how do you address that? Yeah, so I think that there is some ancillary data which is important to take into account as we're discussing um, reliable sources of information. Certainly, we can reach out to and contact other healthcare organizations that may have cared for the patient or pharmacies where they've had their medications filled. Uh, nearly every state has instituted a prescription drug monitoring program, uh, which is a program where uh, when patients fill controlled substances in pharmacies, those prescriptions and the details related to them are entered into a database that can then be accessed by downstream providers who are uh, caring for the patient and may need to know that important information. By the time I'm done recording all of these different podcasts with uh, you fantastic physicians, I'm going to be able to say this, but I'm not quite sure at this point. <laughs> so uh, opioid, opiate, and narcotic, they are not the same thing, or are they? They're not the same thing. And I think that it's important that we do understand the differences in those definitions. That being said, full disclosure <laughs> is on a day-to-day -day basis, we all slip into kind of using them interchangeably. <laughs> oh, good. Um, I, I, so first of all, an opiate are generally naturally occurring alkaloid substances that come from an opium poppy, the three main ones being morphine, codeine, and thebane. Now, narcotic 
really used to be kind of synonymous with opiates when they only had those medications available. Uh, It comes from the Greek word that means mind-numbing, but it has taken on a legal definition as well. It really now is any um, substance which can be uh, used illegally or illicitly and is listed on a national level. So it doesn't just include opiate or opioid medications, but things like cocaine and methamphetamine now legally fall under a definition of narcotic. Okay. Now, opioid medications is really a more encompassing term for the kind of medicines that we're talking about today. That encompasses not only the naturally occurring substances from the opium poppy, but it also uh, is partially synthetic medicines like hydrocodone, oxycodone, or hydromorphone, as well as fully synthetic compounds like fentanyl, which are structurally not similar to opiates, but still act at the same receptor and through the same mechanisms. So by using the the word opioid, we're really talking about uh, apples and apples as opposed to uh, just the naturally occurring like it sounds sort of like a semantic discussion no, but I think it's important so with so many opioids available to you you just said there's the natural occurring ones and the synthetic ones how in the world does a prescriber pick one I mean where do you start are there important differences other than just the potency or where do you begin I think that's a great question. You know, we're really aiming for the analgesic effect, which is the ability to help pain. And with different potencies, we do have systems and conversions that can uh, can talk about equal analgesic dosing. So that's how potent is a medication that the dose for dose will give the same amount of pain control effect. Uh, And so we try to write our prescriptions so that they're standardized to equal analgesic dosing on a standard scale of what we'd call milligram morphine equivalents. Now this is relatively new. It does not Uh, is not pervade by any means medical care and not everyone doesn't do this but I think that it's really important because we don't always appreciate the potency of some of these medications so oxycodone for example is more potent than morphine and uh, when we are writing those prescriptions we want to make sure that we're giving the correct dose for the correct duration and so if we convert them to milligram morphine equivalents it helps us be on the same playing ground That being said, is there are some differences that go beyond just the pain control effect of these medications. Mm -hmm. There's evidence that medications such as hydromorphone have significantly higher uh, euphoriant effects that exceed just the ability to control pain. And so a lot of people are going back to the old standard of morphine. So because you feel the pain, but you don't care about it? <laughs> uh, actually, I've said that exact sentence. And so I think that's a really good description. Okay. Um, and uh, there are a lot of places, including institutions, which have gone to policy of prescribing morphine and not partially synthetic things like oxycodone or hydromorphone based on the perception that they actually have a higher euphoriant effect than the old standby of things like morphine. As a layperson and, you know, you sit around at cocktail parties or whatever and talk about it, a lot of people, I know I have had this happen too, where if you're in the emergency room or if you are given some sort of opioid, that it makes you sick, Mm -hmm. um, either immediately or in the long, you know, next 10 to 12 hours. Is there... Do you figure that in, like, this is a medication that makes people sick sometimes, so we don't want to use that one? Or do you just say, this works, we'll deal with the sickness later? 
<laughs> Good follow-up question because there are medications that certainly have uh, different side effect profiles mm -hmm. as they go through things, and people also experience those medications differently. Mm -hmm. So while some patients may say that tramadol doesn't cause a euphoriant-type effect, other people will say it's more euphoriant than some other medications. Sure. And so there's a, there's a personal experience of that as well. But there are some side effects to these medications which are common, including nausea. Some people get itching related to them. That doesn't necessarily mean that it is an allergic reaction, uh, these medications and especially the old standbys like morphine can cause direct release of histamine, which cause a lot of those symptoms. Uh, at what point do you consider prescribing naloxone? So naloxone is an antidote to um, opioid medications. And it works very quickly and very potently to immediately reverse the effects of opioids. Um, so essentially what you're doing is you, uh, if you administer or you prescribe naloxone is you're asking them to uh, have a rescue medication in case they accidentally or intentionally have an overdose. Um, it, our thinking on this has come a long way as this used to be really a hospital-based medication, um, but it saves lives in the community when people have naloxone available in case of those accidental or intentional overdoses. There are some patients that would certainly benefit from having naloxone available, um, and those are folks that would be at the highest risk for having an accidental or intentional overdose, including uh, folks who have higher doses of opioids prescribed to them or who have a high uh, abuse or addiction potential. So really, if you have a history of an opioid overdose in the past, I think it's really important that prescribers consider le letting uh, their patients have access to uh, naloxone. And many pharmacies and, uh, and states across the nation actually have this available without a prescription. And so uh, prescribers and patients alike should look into their regional um, regulation of this medication to see where and how to get it. As if you have opioid doses which exceed 50 milligram of morphine equivalents per day, um, which means if you're taking more than about six five milligram tablets of oxycodone a day, um, you should consider this as a reversal medication. And um, uh, patients who have a psychiatric illness as a, a, a complicating factor in their care, especially including those with clinical depression. Um, uh, so they should have that available as well as these are high-risk medications if taken in overdose. I'm fascinated by naloxone because I don't understand it hardly at all, but you just <laughs> said a, a reversal kind of, I've, I've thought, is it like an eraser? Like it just like it's a do-over or is it a, a life jacket, you know, that you can keep the patient alive until you can let the effects of the opioid you know filter away as time goes on what exactly does naloxone do i like the idea of thinking of it as an opioid eraser i'm going to use that in <laughs> my clinical practice uh, it really does especially given at adequate doses reverse opioid medications profoundly hmm. it immediately puts patients into a withdrawal state which you have to be prepared for because they can have uh, vomiting diarrhea, and certainly psychomotor agitation or even violence. And this takes effect after an injection within several seconds or minutes. Wow. And so uh, I like the idea of thinking of it as an eraser. There's some important caveats to that, though, because a dose of naloxone will last about an hour. And a lot of the medications that we're reversing are longer acting than the naloxone will be.
And so patients who have to take that naloxone or who uh, bystanders who administer naloxone should alert emergency services and that patients should be monitored and evaluated for a longer period of time to make sure that the duration of the medications doesn't exceed the reversal agent and then they go back into an overdose state. Well, that's why I think about it as a life preserver because you're still out in the ocean. <laughs> you need still, the boat. <laughs> you still got an issue you have to solve, but you can, you know, the life preserver gets you to the emergency room or wherever uh, just long enough. Yeah, that's that helps me understand. Yeah, sure. Um, what is drug diversion? It's very frequent, actually, that we'll have patients come into the doctor's office or to the emergency department and say, you know, I've had this pain, and it didn't go away with some very strong pain medication that uh, my spouse or my grandmother had on hand that we took a dose of. Um, while that sounds very innocent up front, it's actually not a very long jump from that situation to uh, there was 30 pills left over, and so I gave it to a family member. And I'm not sure exactly what they did with it, but maybe they sold it to somebody, or maybe they took that medication, or maybe they're keeping it on hand for a party. Mm -hmm. uh, and so drug diversion is the um, diverting or taking of a medication that's prescribed legally for one patient for an indication that's necessary and using it or diverting it, taking it to another person for whom it's not prescribed uh, and who doesn't necessarily meet those indications uh, for the prescribing. What don't patients understand about this? Because when I hear this advice or when I hear this, here's how it should be, I think patients are thinking, oh, you're just being the law and <laughs> I think I can take care of this medication work for me. I think my husband could take it or my sister could take it. But is there... Is there other things going on that patients don't understand? Yeah, and I think that we have some history with this, which we can rely on as well, because this has been a problem for some time. And we know that the, the highest risk for diversion or misuse of opioid medications really comes with the amount of medication that's prescribed, number of tablets, higher dose, for example. And so if we're giving a lot of an amount of medication to people, um, it, it really puts patients and the community at risk for these things. I know that we always feel that we can manage uh, these medications, but it is very common that medications go missing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very common that uh, people who even believe they're managing them correctly may not um, end up doing that in the long run. Well, uh, I've got my Advil or my ibuprofen and everybody in my family shares that. Or if somebody says, oh my, I have a headache, I give them an ibuprofen. So I understand why people think I've got these opioids I got for my wisdom teeth <laughs> and there's two left. I'll just keep them in case I have <laughs> a headache. I mean, I can see why patients do that, but it's not the same because the medication is different. Yeah, and there is still a need for expertise in our country. Really? We have, <laughs> we, we have uh, uh, the... Uh, popularization, the popularization uh, of a lot of self-management things. And I think that that's a really good trend for a lot of things. But there are some things that still require physicians, nurses, and pharmacists who have expertise in managing these things to help keep individual patients and our populations safe. All right. Speaking of physicians, how do you know then that a patient isn't doctor shopping, so they're not getting an opioid from their sister-in-law, but maybe they're going to different physicians and getting multiple prescriptions. 
Yeah, and, and we've spoken a little bit before about the prescription data monitoring programs that are uh, in place in most states in the nation and are required by uh, at least 27 different states in Guam to be accessed prior to writing some prescriptions for opioid or controlled substance medications. I think that that's a helpful resource and we need to make sure that we're doing that more reliably. I also think that there's other efforts within regions which have been very helpful at uh, quelling this problem, uh, including sharing of electronic medical records between different institutions so that we really have access to who's getting what from where and from whom. And finally, let's talk about uh, the dispensing of the opioids in the emergency department uh, at one o'clock in the morning, to go back to our previous example. When opioids are determined to be uh, needed for some acute pain, what is the best method for administering them? That's a good question. Now, there are certainly patients that can't take anything by mouth or who have severe pain that needs to be acted on within seconds to minutes. And those patients may require intravenous or intramuscular administration of opioids. However, for patients with chronic pain in the absence of cancer, it's really not a good idea to be using intravenous or intramuscular, what we call parenteral administrations of opioids for chronic pain. Beyond just that administration method, in general, chronic pain patients who have long-term opioid use should be getting those prescriptions from a single provider with whom they maintain an opioid therapy agreement. Uh, we shouldn't be allowing doctor shopping or uh, treatment in the ED. Now, that's easier said than done mm. because most of my colleagues will say, and I, I have said, you know, we don't treat chronic pain in the ED. These patients with chronic pain and chronic opioid use are coming to the ED for an acute flare of that pain or some other superimposed pain on top of their chronic pain, like an injury. Now, those are very difficult situations, but in general, adding opioids on top of a chronic use in an emergency department or acute care setting is still probably not a good idea, and I would not recommend it. I think that patients should follow up with their single primary provider who controls their long-term opioid care for any changes in that prescribing. Uh, and I think that we need to have a consistent and unified message for patients that that's what we're gonna do. Uh, and I don't know that we're all there yet. Well, thank you, Dr. Casey Clements, for joining us in our next episode. We'll continue to discuss opioids in the emergency department, and we'll talk a little bit about the weaning uh, of opioids or the discontinuation of them. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share it with a friend. Healthcare professionals looking to claim CME credit for this podcast can go to ce.mayo.edu slash opioid PC and register. That's ce.mayo.edu slash opioid PC. Thank you, Dr. Clements. Thank you. Thank you.